Well, Happy New Year to you. Uh, New Year's opportunity for new beginnings and um, opportunity for uh, for new planning and and uh, goals and that's a good thing to be thinking through. Um, we are in the fourth week of explaining Christianity. We took a week off last week. Uh, I actually took a whole week off of um, studying and administrative responsibilities here at the church and and my brother was here for Sunday school, and so we looked at Joshua 6 with him. But, but this week we want to continue our study back in it's the essentials of the Christian faith. And so we're on the fourth week of this class, and the goal is to, to be able to communicate the true meaning of Christianity. And if we want to know what Christianity is, the best place to, to find out is, is not by studying a lot of history primarily, unless you're talking about biblical, uh, actually studying the Bible itself, but... But, uh, but primarily it's about meeting with Christ. It's about knowing who Christ is, because that's what Christianity is all about. It's about the person of Jesus Christ. And so we want to know who he is, what his life is about, his claims that he's made, who, who he is, his teachings. And so um, let's begin with this handout here, uh, or, or this question here on your handout. Do you know for certain that you would go to heaven if you were to die this very instant? Now, I understand that, that many, if not all of us, are Christians and, and may answer yes to this, but, but there may be some here who say, no, I, I don't know for sure, or I'm not quite sure what the answer to that question is. So I, I would encourage you to think about that question today because we want to try to address that from the text of Mark's Gospel. And um, so before we get into that, let's, let's uh, pray and, and then we'll... Um, We'll uh, review what we've looked at so far. Let's pray. Lord, thankful for this opportunity to come together again and study your word. <clears throat> Lord, we, we want to be people of the book. We want to know you, and we, we know that we can know you by knowing your word. And so we're thankful for it, and um, thankful that it's been translated in our language. <clears throat> and we're thankful that, that we can understand it. Thankful. Um, that your Holy Spirit illuminates our minds so that we can know the, not only the meaning of the text, which any person can know, but, but also the significance of what it means for our daily living, what it means for our goals, what it means for, for how we think and how we act. And I pray that you would help us to, to, con, to be conformed to your word by the power of your spirit today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <coughs> well, the past three times that we've looked at... Um, at this study, we've considered what Christianity is, and we've used a, the idea of a three-legged stool. Um, and the first leg was that Jesus is who? The Son of God. So Jesus, that first leg is that he is deity. He is God himself. He is the Son of God. And then the second leg is that he was crucified. And then this, the third leg was that he was resurrected. So um, the reason that Jesus came to this earth was, was to show that he was divine, by dying for our sins, and um, so we talked about each of those and how that power over death uh, guarantees that God will secure our or has secured our salvation. The fact that he has risen from the dead says that, that this payment that Christ has made on our behalf is enough. And so we have that, that beautiful exchange that takes place that we talked about in the second week, which was that, that uh, our sins, the, the record of our debt, don't want to use the Bible for that, 
Let's use this hymn book here. This dark colored book would be the record of our debts between us and God. And that, that debt falls on Christ at the cross. And so he pays, he has this separation between himself and his Father. As we just sang about, that God was estranged from God. God the Father was estranged from God the Son. And, and that was because he took upon himself our sin. So now no longer do we have the record of our debt on ourselves if we trust in him by faith, but instead we have uh, the perfect record of Christ's life placed on our account. So when between us and God is nothing but Christ's perfect life. And so we have that beautiful uh, exchange called justification. Well, last time uh, I asked you to read Mark chapters 11 through 16 and write down any questions you might have. So does anyone have any questions on that? All right, several of the things in there we, we've kind of been working through as we have been talking about um, the crucifixion and the resurrection. Uh, if you have some that you think of later on, we can, we can address those later in the class. Well, let's turn to the topic now for this morning um, that we want to look at, and that is to how, that we can know, how we can know for certain that we have eternal life with God. How, how can we be able to answer that question that we have at the top of the handout? Suppose you were to die tonight and give an account of your life before God. On what basis would he save you from his righteous and just judgment? So all of us are children of wrath. When we're born, we're born as children of wrath. Uh, Because of our sin, we are sinners born that way, uh, conceived that way, really. And so how do we avoid that? On what basis is God going to say, okay, you're not going to, to fall under my wrath? In other words, what is your case before God? If you're to stand before the courtroom of God's judgment, what is your defense? Fundamentally, you can make your defense before God in one of two ways. Either you can appeal to God on the basis of your own merit, the merit of your own righteousness, um, or you could try to appeal on your lack of wickedness. Or the other case is you can appeal on the merit of someone else. So you can either appeal on the basis of your own internal righteousness or on someone else's external, we we would call that our own external righteousness. And I think all world religions fall into one of these two responses. That is, religions of do, my internal personal merit, my righteousness, or religions of done, which is that my the, the reason I can stand before God is on the basis of someone else's merit. Okay? And what I'm talking about, by the way, is not my parents or my church or something like that. Um, I, I think you understand that, that the merit that we're talking about is Jesus Christ. Our response uh, must be that, that our salvation is not on the basis of works. Um, People who try to, to stand before God one day or even think now that I'm going to stand before God in, in, on the basis of what I have done, they might rationalize, you know, I don't lie, at least not about the most important matters, or, you know, I don't steal, even though I did claim a little bit more than I should have on my last expense report, or I don't commit adultery, although 
I do fantasize about it at times. See, the, basically the idea is not that I'm not bad. It's, it's the idea when people uh, claim righteousness on the basis of their own merit, they're basically thinking I'm not as bad as the next guy. Right? They always think of someone worse than, than they are. Right? Or, or we, we do that, the same sort of thing when we try to, to base our salvation on our own works. We, we compare ourselves to other people and we say, well, what about this guy? See, I know someone else who's worse than I am. And so on the basis of that, God has to accept me. And, and all that, that points to um, a picture of, of us doing things on the basis of our own merit. But when we get to heaven, God's not going to ask, you know, on what basis do you think I should let you in? He's going to, a- he's going to ask, on what basis have I told you that I would let you in? Right? And so, um, let's see here where we're at. The second page there. But, but there's another option. Okay, so we, we tend to think this way. I think we're kind of born uh, with this sin nature that, that thinks in this way that I'm good enough. I don't need God. I don't want God. I don't need his provision of righteousness, of cleansing, of, of forgiveness. So that's one way to say, God, I'm going to try to be accepted on the basis of my own merit, and, and that doesn't work. The, the, the only way that does work is the second response, which is pleading the merit of someone else. Pleading the merit not of my own, because I am not perfect, I can't ever be perfect. And that's what Christianity is all about. It's about pleading the merit of someone else. It's pleading the merit of Christ. I need no other argument. I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died for me. That's all we we stand on, the basis of Christ's righteousness. And what did he do? What what was it that was so special about Christ that, that he could take our place, that, that God would accept what he did um, for our salvation? And and I think maybe a helpful way to think about it is these three legs of the stool. That he is the Son of God. Do you realize that no human other than Jesus could be be a proper sacrifice for our sins. And the reason for that is because if if um, in order for our sins to be paid for, they had to be paid for by a perfect sacrifice. Right? The blood of bulls and goats never took away sin. They they forgave sin for a time, but they never finally did it. That's why they had to keep doing it over and over again. Jesus becomes the once for all payment for sin and only God the God man could do that because he had to be perfect he had to be sinless in order for that debt to be paid uh, but but it could not just be God God the Father I don't know if you thought about this or not but God the Father could not pay for our sins do you realize that God the Father cannot pay for our sins because he wasn't human he had to he had to die and God the Father cannot die that's why Jesus took on the form of flesh. That's why we sing the song during Christmas time, Born to Die. That, that was why he came. He came to take on human flesh so that he could experience what we experience and then, and then die, which, which God the Father cannot do, God the Spirit cannot do, God the Son only uh, could do. And so we have that first leg, God is deity, or Jesus is deity, he is God, the, he is God the Son, and then that second leg, that he was crucified, and then that third leg, that he was resurrected. So those are the, those are the things that we think about when we, when we want to think about how we are going to be accepted before God. On what basis will God accept us 
in heaven? On what basis has he told us, I will accept you, and it's on the basis of Jesus Christ? So let's um, just examine these two these two, um, two options. First, the wrong answer. God will accept me on the basis of what I do. This is the wrong answer. So let me have um, four volunteers to read Scripture. Eric, Margaret. Uh, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't give you one there. Eric, James 2.10. Margaret Galatians 3:10, Bill Romans 3:23, Greg Mark 7:20 to 23, and then I can take uh, three more, two while we're while we're at it. Paul, Ephesians 2:8-9, Jennifer, Romans 3:28, and Evan Romans 10:9. Okay, so we'll get to those here in just a second. So let's first go over the wrong answer. The wrong answer when we say, "How is it that God will accept me before Him on that final day?" How is it that God will accept me? The wrong answer is to plead my case. You know, what I've done or what I have not done. God, here's a long list of all the things that I've done for you. Right? And here's the long list of things that I haven't done for you. This appeal emphasizes my own righteousness by calling attention to the good things that I've done and the bad things that I've avoided. However, there's nothing that I can do to make myself right before God. Not one good work or all my good work combined over a lifetime can atone for my sin or will qualify me for heaven. And why is that? What does God require in order for someone to come into his presence and remain in his presence? Perfection. 100%. Now, you may be thinking, no way. Is that really what the Bible says? I mean, can the Bible really be that demanding on me that, that we have to be perfect Listen to Rome, or I'm sorry, J- James 2:10. Okay, so we we may have this long list of things, you know, we keep the whole law, but we have a couple things that we have done over here that were sinful. James is saying, "Listen, you failed. You're you're guilty of the whole law." If you've I mean, this is really a, a hypothetical situation. There's no one could actually do this that could keep every single thing but stumble only on one point. But he's saying even if that were the case, if someone had that high of a, of a standard of living that they could keep the entire law and only fail in one spot, they would be responsible for an, they would be responsible for their sin and would be damned to an eternal hell. Listen to Galatians 3:10. I'm yeah, this is the Apostle Paul here, not just James here. Galatians 3.10. Okay, so here Paul is addressing the, the Judaizers who are trying to claim that, you know, you need to go back to the Old Testament text of Scripture and need to follow all the, the Jewish rules and regulations and... Um, and what Paul's saying is, listen, if you live by the works of the law, you will be under a curse. You are under a curse. Because those who are under the works of the law will die. They're under a curse. And why do you think Paul said that? Well, he's quoting from Moses, and this is what Margaret read in the second part. Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. And, and, and so what he's saying is that no one is justified by God on the basis of obeying the law there is no room for error and by that standard we all fail miserably this is what Romans 3:23 says 
So, you remember the, the record of our sins? Right? We have this, this record of, of all the things that we have done. And however large or small your book is, this is what separates you from God. The record of your sins. If, for example, there was a... The idea is that if there were a book that recorded every single sin that you ever committed, that separates you from God. Now, we have to be clear that there are some people that are more morally wicked than you are, right? You certainly are not as bad as Hitler was, right? Or, or um, you know, just pick any number of people. So relatively speaking, we have to say, yes, there are levels of morality. We could, we could take all of the sinners that have ever lived and we could put them on a list and rank them on the basis of how moral they were or how immoral they were. So that's not the point, is that, that everybody is on the same plane in that way. But um, everyone would agree that, that Hitler earned a spot in hell, but, but the Bible says that we all have earned a spot in hell because of our sin. So that is, that, that we are all under the wrath of God if we live on the basis of our own righteousness. And so the standard that, that we're going to be judged by is not, okay, let's take someone as low as Hitler and see if you're better or worse than him. If you're worse than him, you obviously need, deserve hell. Right? But if you're, if you're better, then you're going to be okay. That's not the basis on which God's going to accept anyone into heaven. And I think just naturally people think that way. And maybe you came here thinking that way this morning. That, that you know, it's interesting when you talk to, to, uh, to atheists that, that, um, that once you get into the issue of morality, they have to agree with you that there are certain things that are immoral or that are godless, right? And they'll, they'll say someone like, if they do believe in hell, they'll say someone like Hitler deserves it. But then they'll say, but I don't. And, and the, the follow-up question that we should have in a situation is like that. On what basis do you say that? Why do you think that Hitler deserves hell more than anybody else? Right? And, and what they've done is they've actually borrowed from our worldview, and they've said that there is some level of morality, and I'm determining it. See, if you keep drilling down and asking why do you believe that Hitler is so um, worthy of hell, then, then, then actually they do have a standard for righteousness, it's just it doesn't come from here. It actually comes from what God has put into every person's heart. That is that everyone knows, according to Romans 2, 14 and 15, everyone knows that, that there is a difference between right and wrong. Now, over time, what happens is people train their consciences, and often in a wrong way, to determine what is right and wrong. And so, so those standards are, are changing. But in general, everyone knows what is right and wrong. That is a, a, an overall sense. So God's not going to allow us to um, to compare ourselves to someone like a Hitler. To help underscore this point, think about a swim race from San Francisco to Hawaii, 2,387 miles. The competitors in the race include you and Olympic swimmer Michael Phelps. Now, Phelps would certainly make it closer to Hawaii than you would, but the fact is that you would both drown. And the same is true for God's law, right? All have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. 
We've fallen short of God's standard of what He expects for every single human being. On the basis of what we do, doesn't matter who makes it farther to Hawaii, we're all going to drown. Because we've, in, in terms of, of life, we have broken God's law and we deserve His punish, punishment. And so, um, so God is completely just to do that. Let's turn to Mark 7, and uh, Greg's going to read for here. Is that, Greg, do you have Mark 7 there? Okay, he's going to read here in just a second for us, but why don't we turn and, and follow along. Mark seven twenty to 23. Uh, one second. Sin is not fundamentally about what we've done, but rather who we are. Okay? It's, it's not about what we've done. We tend to think that that we are sinners because we do all sorts of different sins. But notice what Jesus says about sin in Mark 7, verses 20 to 23. Okay. Okay, so here Jesus is saying, listen, you guys are all concerned about what you eat and what can defile you by what you put in your body. And certainly there are things that can defile us. But he said, he said ultimately what defiles you is not what you put in your body, but what comes out of your heart. And, and so that's why he says in verse 21, all the things that you do, all the things that you speak and say and think, those are all a result of what's in your heart. No one has ever said something that they hadn't first already considered in their heart. So you have someone, uh, the, the example that has really helped me um, by Paul Tripp and his, I think it was in his parenting uh, seminar. I've got some DVDs on that. And um, he's saying, you know, um, he, was a, he was a younger boy and his uncle was at a party and he was drunk and and he said something about his family member that was just unbelievable. The family just was shocked that he would say something like that. And his mom walked away from that event and told Paul, as a young boy, he said, Paul, nothing that your uncle has said was not already thought about in his heart. You know, he think, oh, well, it was just a slip up. You know, it kind of just slipped out. And, and the example that Paul Tripp goes on to use is, is the example of a water bottle. You know, we, we could make all sorts of arguments about, you know, if he had a water bottle in his hand, some of it pours on the floor. And we could, well, why did that water pour on the floor? Was it something that had to do with the bottle? Was it the way that he was walking? Was it, was it something that was going on with the Earth's gravitational pull? We could make all these um, excuses or, or theories about why the water spilled. But he said, ultimately, do you know why the water spilled? Because there's water in the bottle. And the point is, is that the reason that we do sinful things, the reason that we say sinful things, the reason that we think sinful things, we can go through and psychologize all of it. 
But the reason that it happens is because we're sinful people. That's what Jesus is saying here. It's not about what put, you put into your body and that's going to defile you. He's saying it's what comes out of your heart. That we are by nature sinners. Representatives uh, uh, following our representative Adam, like we saw in Romans chapter 5. And so we have a huge problem because this source of sin uh, doesn't come from outside of us that kind of compels us and pulls us to sin, but it actually comes from inside of us. So it's not that we're sinners because we sin, it's that we sin because we are sinners. Think of it this way. If you went to the doctors to be treated for measles and he tried to cure it by placing Band-Aids over the spots, then you would call his attempt ridiculous and maybe his, his practice a fraud because he's only treating the symptoms and he's not even doing that very well. He's trying to heal the spots and that's pointless and useless endeavor. Isn't that what Isaiah said? Right? How, can we, how can the leper change his spots? We could say it this way with our illustration. How can a person with measles get rid of his spots? And, and the point is that the healing has to come from within. And the same thing is true with our sin. We, we can say the wrong things and you know, all these symptoms of sin keep coming up. You know, it comes to our thoughts and our words and our actions. And we could, you know, we could actually tape up our mouths and tie up our hands so that we wouldn't sin in that way. But that would be like the doctor putting the Band-Aids on the measles, right? We still sin. There, there's, uh, you know, if you just read through church history, you're going to find that the monks thought that if they could just get away from a sinful world, a sinful society, then they could be as close to God as possible. They could be as free from sin as possible. But do you know what happened? Those people were some of the most corrupt people that you met. You you wouldn't meet them. They'd be out often, you know, they build all these poles and sit up on top of a pole and supposedly read the Bible all day. But But the problem is, is that sin comes from within. And so we can shelter ourselves or our kids from all sorts of things that are outside of us. But ultimately, we can't shelter our kids and ourselves from our own hearts, right? We we can try to say, okay, we're going to pull them away from a godless world and we're going to build up our little um, bunker, spiritual bunker, so that our kids just, and ourselves, we don't sin. But the truth is is that sin comes from within. And yes, there is wisdom in guarding ourselves against the world. I'm not suggesting just throw them out to the wolves. Uh, with our kids, but but we do need to recognize that that even the most godly environment that a, that that a person could ever have will not protect them from their own heart. And the best example that I have for that is the one that I've I've pointed to often, and that is during the millennial kingdom. That during the millennial kingdom, everyone who enters the millennial kingdom has to be a child of God. So at the beginning of the millennial kingdom, it's all believers. It's all resurrected church members. It's um, Old Testament saints. So these are all believers who are the, the, um, the church is going to be in the resurrected bodies. The Old Testament saints, I think, they'll, yeah, they'll be in the resurrected bodies, I think, at the beginning of the... But then you also have some tribulation saints who come in their non-resurrected bodies. So it would be similar like if, if we live during the tribulation, which we won't because we're part of the church, but... But let's say that we live during the tribulation and we survive the tribulation, all the terror that comes on the Antichrist, 
You're going to have some tribulation saints that just go on living. They don't die and then get resurrected and, and, and are free from sin. However, they are trusting in Christ. They are believers. And what happens to people who, who go into the millennium with non-resurrected bodies? Well, they, they marry and they bear children. So obviously, we and our resurrected bodies will not be able to do that. But, 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 um, but these tribulation saints will be able to. And so you'll actually have a whole new race of people who are born during the millennial kingdom. And you know what's amazing is that the, at the end of the millennial kingdom, there is going to be a whole nation full of people who are rising up against Jesus Christ the King. And so what that tells us is that over a thousand year period of time, that these people somehow show themselves for who they really are. That, that, so let's go back to the beginning. Okay, these tribulation saints come, they have children, and they, they grow up with the best king they could possibly have, King Jesus. Okay, so we were always, oh, they've got a really bad government, that's why the kids are that way. They grow up with the best family, right? They have believers for their parents. They live in a community that is all made up of people who love Jesus and who worship Jesus. They go to the best schools. Everything about their environment is, is perfect in terms, of, in terms of raising a person up in spirituality, right? And yet, somehow, they turn away. Do you know the reason for that? It's because you can never protect somebody from themselves, from their own hearts that are corrupt. People are not sinful. See, see, think about this child who grows up during the millennial kingdom. He's not sinful. Uh, he, he's not a, a sinner because he sins. He sins because he's a sinner. He was born with a sinful heart, just like you and I are. And so we can, we can uh, set up all these boundaries, but we need to recognize that the thing that we cannot guard our children from, things we cannot guard ourselves from is our own heart. I think you know this from your own experience as well. Um, you know, you you know of people who just went to the the greatest and um, strictest of measures to guard their children from the corruption of the culture, from the corruption of of um, bad company. Right, bad company corrupts good morals. Okay, so so obviously that again, I'm not saying don't don't do that kind of thing. I'm just saying recognize that there's a greater danger than than even their environment. That's their own heart. <clears throat> the central problem that we run into is that we want to run our lives our own way. We want to live apart from God and ultimately trust in ourselves. And yet, Romans 3.10 says that there is no one who understands. There's no one who seeks God. There's no one who does good, not even one. And so this is something that we all should recognize, hopefully as Christians, but I think every single human being should recognize that we are all guilty before a holy God. And this is Paul's point in chapter 2 of Romans. He wants to make it clear that whether you're Jew or Gentile, we're all sinners, and we, whether we want to admit it or not, we, we will stand before God one day, and if we stand on the basis of our own righteousness, we will be rejected. All right, any questions on that? A lot of talking there for me, but, but do you have any questions or comments? Greg. 
Yeah. Yeah, that's what we want to look at now, which is the right answer. So how can I know that I have a right relationship with God? How can I know that when I die, God will accept me, will not put me under his wrath? How can I know I'll be accepted into his holy presence? And the right answer is not on the basis of what I have done. Okay, I just kind of overlook this, but take this other book of all my good deeds, and maybe God will look at that. It's not on that basis, but it's on the basis of Christ's righteousness, on God's free and loving grace alone. So who, who can help us with a definition of grace? Okay, undeserved, unearned merit. It's not anything that we've done, and I would even suggest it's unwanted merit. That's what grace is. Um, that, that no one is in a position, um, we'll, we'll see next week in Romans 9 in the morning service, that no one, no one was ever in a position to want God's grace. God's grace first came to them, and then they wanted to respond in faith. That's the way it works. And, and grace is, is actually receiving the opposite of what we deserve. So the only thing that God will accept is not the, the, the merit of our righteousness, the merit of our works, but rather an unmerited favor which is found in Christ. His divine authority, remember the first leg of the stool, his substitutionary death, or as we sang about, his vicarious death and life, that's his substitutionary death and life, and then his resurrection, that's the third leg of the stool. Listen to Ephesians 2, 8, 9, because here we see that God's favor towards us is based on what Christ did on the cross Okay, so God's saying that God saves us by faith that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. So in place of what God demands, which is perfection, in place of perfection, God accepts something else. And that is faith in one who was perfect. Faith in the one who was perfect, and that is Jesus. He is our substitute. God says in, in place of your perfection, I'm going to grant you grace. And here's how your grace is. Here's here's how this grace is received, ex- accepted, expressed. It's through your faith. By grace you've been saved through faith, not of yourself. So not over here, not on the basis of works that we have done, so that we can't boast in anything that we've done. We we can't say anything about why we are here and our neighbor's not, or why we are here and our unbelieving relative is not. We can't say anything about us. Why? Because we didn't do anything. It was all God. Right? We responded in faith, but, but ultimately it was God who, who poured out the grace on us. Now, that doesn't mean that good works are not important. Even though we're made right and God sees us. See, here's, here's what we might think. Now that Christ's righteousness has been applied to our account, we might think, well, it doesn't matter how I live now. When God sees me, he sees Christ. And, and too often we, we think, you know, it's, it's not a big deal. As long as I believe in Christ, I can do whatever I want. But, but that kind of attitude is the attitude of an unbeliever. It actually cheapens the grace of God and presumes upon his forgiveness. And, um, and that actually ignores the very next verse. Paul, are you still there in Ephesians 2? You read verse 10. Okay.
Okay, so we were saved by grace through faith, and that's where we can say, okay, when God looks at us, he sees Christ. It's by grace. It's done. It's finished. There's nothing more that we need to add to it. There's no works that we need to add and say, well, you know, it was Christ's righteousness plus my righteousness. It's not that. But, but the very next verse says, but God created us for good works so that we would walk in him, so that we would be his, as the King James says, his workmanship, his craftsmanship. So we are justified by grace alone, through faith alone, but, but our faith is never alone. right? Our, our faith never stops. It doesn't just, okay, well, I've already trusted in Christ, and so now I don't need to do anything else. Our faith is never alone. The evidence of true Christian faith is not a decision that we once made, but it's the fruit of a faithful life. So when we get to heaven, the basis of our right standing before God is not going to be... Let's see here in the front of my Bible the date I got saved. Here it is. God, will you accept me on the basis of that? God's not going to do that on the basis of a decision that was made. See, that's been the, the pattern of of our churches over the past century, really, is that it's that if, if, you, if you're struggling with your assurance of salvation, go back to your decision day. Remember that day. Don't forget that. But what, but what God is going to accept is not that. It's on the basis of, of the fruit of a faithful life. He's going to look at our lives and say, was there good works? Because if I created you, if I made you into a new creature, behold, old things are passed away, all things have become new, if I did that, do you know what's going to naturally guarantee or, or natural result? It's going to be fruit. Because what, when I make a creation, it actually results in something. It results in good works. All right, any questions on grace? We are saved by grace. Um, let's see, I think I... Did I skip... I skipped a couple of verses. So, does someone have Romans 3:28? Go ahead. Okay. So again, that 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 um, contrasts with what Margaret read early, which is no man is justified by the works of the law. We hold that we are justified not by works of the law, Galatians 3:10, but by faith, Romans 3:28, and then Romans 10:9. Okay, so here's how God accepts us. Okay, um, faith results in justification. So when God pours out his grace on us, we respond with repentance and faith, and that faith is expressed in, I believe that Jesus was enough, that Jesus died for my sin, that he, if he, you believe in your heart, that God, read that again. Sorry about that. Yeah. Okay, so if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. So, so it's, it's, um, it's, it's a response to what God has done. God pours out the grace. We respond with repentance and faith. God grants justification. Now, let me just go back to something I said because we might be thinking, well, why is the date that we got saved not important? Is, is this some kind of a gradual process? I want, I want to be clear that salvation does happen instantaneously. It does happen at one point in time. It's not, in one sense, it's not a gradual process. 
Okay, so I'm not saying that you're, the date you got saved is not important. I'm just saying that should not be the basis on which you think you're accepted before God. It's the difference between a birth certificate and a pulse. Okay, when, when a person comes to um, the scene of an accident, let's say a, a paramedic comes to the scene of an accident, how do they determine if that person has life? They go through his pockets and look for his birth certificate? No. They'd see if they have life on the basis of, you know, does he have a pulse? Does he show signs of life? This is how we have, this is not how you get life. This is how you show signs of life. That's what 1 John's all about. You want to see if you have a spiritual false? Read through 1 John. There's three proofs for how you can know that you are a child of God. That's why John wrote the book. And it is that, that we are um, trusting that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that he was our sacrifice. It's, it's loving our brothers and it's, it's obeying God's commands. Those are the three things that John brings up over and over again in his, his epistle. And so I think he, he helps us to move away from that sort of idea that I need, to get, I need to show that I'm a Christian by my spiritual birth certificate rather than show that I'm a Christian by, by the, the proof that comes from my life. I'm actually obeying God's commands. Let me um, just uh, turn your attention to uh, Romans 3 here. We'll look at this passage in closing. But before we do that, I'll read a quote from a quotation from um, Jerry Bridges. Jerry Bridges is a Christian author, um, very prominent in the Navigators. Excellent writer. Commend his books to you. And this is what he said. He said, Every day of our Christian experience should be a day of relating to God on the basis of His grace alone. That your worst days are never so bad that you are beyond the reach of God's grace. So if you ever feel like, you know, man, I really messed up and, and God can never, you know, repair this. It's just irreparable. And, and what Bridges is saying on the basis of, I think, truth from Scripture is that we're never beyond the reach of God's grace. God's grace can reach out and save even the most vilest of sinners uh, as, it did with, as he did with Paul. And he goes on, Bridges says, and your best days are never so good that you're beyond the need of God's grace. See, that, that's really where we need to be when it comes to um, our salvation. We need to recognize and, and our progress as Christians that, that we're never at a point where God says, you know, I just can't, can't, save, I can't help you anymore. You know, you've just gone too far. But we're also not at, never at a part where we don't need God's grace. We're always in a place where our hearts are sinful and, and we're turning away from God and we need God to pour out more grace upon us. So let's look at Romans 3, beginning in verse 19. But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. This was to demonstrate His righteousness because in the forbearance of God He passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of His righteousness at the present time so that He, God, would be, the just, would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. The message of the gospel is a message of great 
hope and confidence that we can have that God accepts us, not on the basis of anything that we have done, but on the basis of what Christ has done. And so he takes our faith in Christ as a, an acceptable way to, enter, to allow us to enter into his eternal presence. And that's something about which we as Christians should be confident about, but it's also something about which we should have great joy. Any questions or comments? Saved by grace alone. This is all my plea. All right. Hope that is an encouragement to you as you think about um, the great love that God has shown to you and and to me, and, and he continually does. Let's pray. Lord, we are amazed at your grace, and, and, and as we're reminded about our sin and how vile we, we really are, we, we um, shed these ideas of self-righteousness and fall on you for grace because, Lord, if it were not for you, we would be nothing. We would be um, destined for an eternal hell, and yet in your mercy, you've shown uh, great love to us in, in allowing us to come to you, and, Lord, we can't stop thanking you. And one of the reasons that we gather together as believers is to sing praise to you because of what you've done and to remind each other about that great truth and and to continue to to mine the depths of the scriptures for for these great and and, um, wonderful um, principles and and, um, precepts that you've given to us. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to, to be obedient followers of you. We don't want to become complacent or to presume upon your grace, to cheapen your grace by saying it doesn't matter how we live. I pray that you would help us to be um, firm and and bold in in putting away, killing sin that is in our lives and continually seeking to follow your command. We pray in Jesus' name.